Well, let's talk about the story of how it, this success was achieved, remarkable success and a brilliant story, including its humble beginnings. So run us through how you'd come out here and get started on your restoration, how it sort of evolved. Well, I, I, I've grown up on the water and yeah. um, so, so diving has always been um, you know, one of my um, real hobbies. But um, w- once I moved down here in 1994, um, I just wanted to have a, um, a bit of a go at um, trying to transplant seagrasses, which at that, that stage it was uh, considered to not be a viable option. Um, I had a couple of ideas based on observations with terrestrial grasses, mainly lawns, and um, I put that to test in um, Oyster Harbour and had a remarkable success, you know, 97% survival rates, very uh, rapid uh, growth. So, um, And you literally started this just on your little fishing sojourns? But basically, yes. Um, I like to chase the blue swimmer crabs around and um, that was just something that... I, I did, um, after the initial success, I set up some more comprehensive trials, um, a little foolishly in the sense that um, I still wasn't confident in what the survival was going to be, so mm. my uh, plots were substantially larger than they needed to be, so that created a huge amount of additional work. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, uh, uh, once that happened, then um, I, I started... Uh, restoration work. Uh, some of it was um, uh, funded in a sense. Um, in 2001, uh, the Coast Care Coast West uh, organised a day where we uh, chartered a boat and provided bits and pieces for, and we had uh, about 26 volunteers and, um, on Australia Day and we planted out uh, 0.8 of a hectare, mm. which is a, a beautiful meadow now. Um, yeah, well. And Following that, there's been some uh, research programs initiated and uh, uh, the seagrass research and um, rehabilitation program was initiated uh, by Department of Infrastructure and Resources and Coburn Cement. Um, They had a ministerial requirement that uh, they had to restore so many hectares of seagrass uh, as an offset to um, seagrass loss due to mining lime sands in Coburn Sound and also construction of a, a um, boat harbour there. And uh, so I was incorporated into that and through that we did uh, some more uh, restoration, another one and a half hectares and um, it just sort of uh, went on from there. Yeah, and you found then that that this long-term degradation and where it had been effectively given up on officially actually happened the restoration ended up happening remarkably quickly yes and and you know the area that i've been working on and um i I was uh, chartering planes every four or five years and photographing this so you can actually see the restoration and the trials Mm. um proceeding and uh in this area uh back in 1989 there was only uh, several hectares and uh now we're looking at about 146 hectares so that's you know a, a really dramatic uh, turnaround. Yeah. Did that surprise you? Yes, it, it, it did. I mean, I was always hopeful, mm. but um, it, it, the promising aspect of this is that the 
the system has it's not restored to its uh, uh, natural uh, you know pristine sort of um, condition but it's a dramatic improvement and it's a credit to a lot of um, uh, people um, in various fields and it's it's a indicative that we can make a difference um, uh, one one little study that was done several years ago for instance was that um, the seagrass the restored seagrass uh, stores anywhere from 30 to maybe 50 times the carbon that uh, per hectare uh, compared to say the Amazon rainforest yeah amazing it's, um, so it's very important in carbon sequestering yes mm. we'll come back to that for the moment run us through the story of what you stumbled on in terms of the most effective way to get that restoration going on that ended up being so much simpler again than what was expected yeah and I think um, sometimes people overthink stuff uh, I had a, a just an observation from gardening on land and if you take say a piece of buffalo grass or, or kaikuyu the runners which actually uh, intrude on your footpath if you cut those off and plant them they actually grow and spread very rapidly I also noticed that um, if you uh, cut a sod out of the middle of the lawn and plant it it would survive but it would take a year and a half before it would put out runners and I, I just decided to test that um, with seagrasses and found exactly the same thing if you t took the um, advancing edge of a meadow that would grow very rapidly which enables it to cope with sand accumulation uh, macroalgal drifts that sort of thing and so that uh, type of rhizome pioneers and colonizes the sediment very quickly and then it infills um, later on I did find that uh, the rhizome that I took from within a meadow, that still, I still had the same survival. Um, it still grew in terms of leaf production uh, at the same rate, but it didn't spread. It uh, sat there for 18 months before it put out these uh, running shoots uh, called plagiotropic shoots, and then it would continue. So it was just a very simple system. You can re uh, swim around the edge of, of a patch of seagrass or meadow and remove you know, a, a sprig every um, 30, 40 centimetres. Um, I've demonstrated that it, there is no um, uh, impact on, on that. And those uh, uh, sprigs are very, very light, easy to transport around and very easily attached or, or implanted into the sediment. So it was a, a, a you know, very cost-effective way um, to actually proceed. Yeah, and what are the implications then for other regions? Does it work elsewhere? Yeah, and it, it works with, with most species. I, I, I've played around with species that grow vertically out in King George Sound, um, uh, Posidonia coriaceae. As long as you can hold it down until the roots just, uh, take uh, hold, which is only a matter of weeks, that will grow. Mm. Um, weed, uh, amphibolous species, um, that grows beautifully too. It, basically they all grow as long as you can um, hold them in place and yeah. you put them in the natural environment that they occur in. Yeah, so that's an interesting point then because that was part of why officialdom had given up on it, right? That they had tried but not putting it in the right set of conditions. I think um, there were two, two parts to that. Probably they may, um, uh, restoration attempts might have been um, targeting a bare area, but the bare area might not have been where they naturally um, grow. The other aspect 
is um, those conditions. Most of them were actually taking cores. Uh, for, so when oh, you, yes. you take a core, you, you take a core well into um, a, a seagrass meadow, and as a result, you had the um, the, the type of rhizome which would only grow vertically and would not um, uh, spread rapidly initially, at least, and that would make it prone to wave action, sediment um, movement, etc., and it would be buried and smothered. Mm, yeah. So I, I think there's a, a number of, and, and probably the other thing too is that. You can only restore, say, a seagrass after it's been lost when the conditions that resulted in its loss have actually been rectified. Yes, yes. Well, that's an interesting point too now when we look at some of the restoration that's happened up around Shark Bay, for example, that's also been terrifically successful since the last shocking marine heat wave 10 or so years ago. And we're forecast to, to have another one. And this is part of the issue, isn't it, that we're getting these things more frequently before the recovery can really set in. And now the people up at Ningaloo and Shark Bay are sort of on tender hooks for the next couple of months as to what it might bring with this heat wave. What about that? And what about that even here? Is this something that you're sort of on the lookout for, whether uh, the recoveries will be compromised here? I don't think... Um, on the south coast that um, the recovery will be compromised because the, even though we do have these periods of warmer water and during the last heat wave we were um, getting uh, the odd mud crab d uh, down in the Albany region. You know, so you wouldn't they, get they, that they, normally? No, no, no yeah, you would not. Right. Uh, um, but the increases in te temperature, water temperature are relatively low compared to the scenario up at Shark Bay, mm. the waters are all, already quite warm, yeah. you know, probably in your mid-twenties, and then you get another three or four degrees on there, um, it will definitely cook the seagrass. But here, the changes are, are much more reduced. And when you look at a system like um, Princess Royal and Oyster Harbour, in the very shallows, on Albany's rare hot days, the water actually gets very warm. You know, it would be 25, 26 degrees. And wow. It doesn't kill the seagrass. So wow, more margin for, for here. I think we've got more margin. Yeah. Um, the, the, the big concern is the Shark Bay area. Yeah, yeah. So what about that? What are people trying to do to to prepare, knowing that this is sort of the way it's going to be into the future? Are you aware of some of the measures they've tried to take in their restoration efforts? I haven't been involved, but I am aware. But I think the issue with Shark Bay and seagrass restoration there is that, again, it, it's only going to be potentially viable if and when seagrasses become more tolerant to warmer temperatures. Mm. You know, so it's much the same with coral bleaching and through the same yes, same events. Exactly. And I was reading an article that's, I think, in um, the Saudi Gulf, uh, there are corals growing there which um, are growing at much higher temperatures than what uh, we're seeing on the barrier reef with the bleaching. Oh. So there is potential that in time you know, something will Some adaptation. Ad adapt to it, yes. Yeah. yeah, while we hopefully take the foot off the heating pedal. Well, exactly, yes. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask that about around the world and uh, are there any other sort of startling examples of this sort of work succeeding? In other places? Yes, in the US there's been quite a lot of work 
with um, one of the species of seagrasses there, I think most of the effort has been collecting seed and dispersing seed. Yes, which so seems to work as well in some places. It, it, it does, yes. yes. And, That's the Shark Bay. And, and Shark Bay yeah. is, is, is using that. With, with the situation in Oyster Harbour, there, what, uh, the seagrass wasn't there to provide mm. seed, so there was no seed, so it had to be planted. And I found that my um, transplants were flowering in their fifth year. So there was remnant seagrass in Oyster Harbour, but that tended not to fruit successfully. And I think the main reason was that even though they flowered, the flowers were actually being eaten by some sort of snail. So the, the whole e ecological balance was upset by the deterioration in the water quality. And so we weren't getting that seed accumulating in the harbour. But once um, the, um, the transplants became successful and flowered, we, we started seeing a lot of seed coming through. Yes, and you mentioned before the agricultural situation that the change in landscape management in the catchment area was a big factor and that's connected to the broader Gondwana Link project which we spoke about with Keith a yes. little earlier. So effectively then your work's regarded as part of that networked connecting approach across a large stretch of country and incorporating these waterscapes. Exactly and I think the, the, the main thing that can come out of this story is to provide encouragement to the uh, farmers, land care groups, etc., that we can make a change, and we have made a change, and there is so much more room, so much more scope, to actually um, enhance this.